You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Alex Honnold once said that being in Black Diamond's solution harness feels like home. And that's either a ringing endorsement from one of the best or a desperate cry for help. The real we here at the Enormacast is just going to assume it's the former, because the latter is quite complicated. And besides, we climb in a solution too. Not a sport harness or a trad harness, it's the one harness that stays in my pack for everything, because it's comfy and svelte without all the extra muckety-muck. I mean, really, what's a full-strength haul loop actually for? Anyone? Anyone? Neither Smoot or Holly can tell you why you'd ever want 2,000 pounds hanging off your ass while you're climbing. So feel like you're home in a cleanly designed, comfortable solution harness from Black Diamond. And check out all their soft goods at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite retailer. Black Diamond, a proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to peterwgilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the Enormacast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's peterwgilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. What the hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a freight end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is June 11th. No, 10th. No, 20th. It is June 20th. Wait, it's not even June. Okay. Things are going great here this morning. Let's try this again, shall we? Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is May 20th, 2021, about 10.30 in the morning. And this is episode 220 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Alex Honnold. And why am I so giddy 
this morning. Well, guess what? Carbondale, Colorado lifted its mask mandate, and I got to climb in the climbing gym without a mask on. Do you remember that? Do you remember the mask not riding up on your face? Remember being able to breathe? That happened yesterday. It's quite exhilarating, actually. So we're feeling pretty good over here in Carbondale, Colorado. The mask compliance up to this moment has been great in this town. Surrounding towns, down, uh, down the western slope, not so much. Not so much. And here's the thing. You go to a place, everybody's wearing their masks like they're supposed to. And, you know, aside from, you know, whether or not you're that concerned about, about, about COVID, it just feels good that everybody's respecting the people who work there, you know, and that, that there's not some weird, uh, you know, weird politics going on. You're just like, yeah, we all got our masks on. Cool. Let's relax and like uh, check out this lettuce here, you know, see if it's uh, wilted or not. And then, then go on about our business. That's all uh, falling by the wayside a little bit, and uh, it looks like we're getting out of this pandemic thing. Are we out of the politics? No, we are not. Alas. But I'm also giddy because uh, I got a podcast here with Alex Honnold, and I, I went on sort of a mission to, uh, to find out, has fame changed Alex Honnold? And I've known Alex Honnold for a long time, actually. It's like a lot of these things. I've known these people. And I mentioned in here like 10 years ago, but I think I met Alex like 15 years ago, sometime in the aughts, in an old watering hole there in Moab called Eddie McStiff's. Is Eddie McStiff's still there? I don't even know because actually Moab has become a hellscape, frankly. Have you guys been there this year? Yeah, it ain't pretty. I've been down there, but I try to stay off of Main Street. It's like New York City traffic down there. Anyway, Moab, you blew it. You blew it, you guys. Hotel chain developers are not your friends. They're not. They don't care about you. Anyhow, back to Alex Hunnell. Yeah, ran into him in Eddie McStiff's, I think before he'd free soloed the uh, Moonlight Buttress, which I think is the thing that really popped him onto uh, our radar, even though it seems a little bit like ancient history. He was not drinking. He was not really even socializing. <laughs> I think he was there with some friends, and uh, Eddie McStiffs, especially upstairs back then, was sort of a big meeting place for the climbing community or the outdoor community in general, especially in the wintertime. I think it was winter. But yeah, he was out there knocking out cracks, and I remember him just sitting in a chair with a hoodie up. He's come a long way on that front, on the willingness to socialize, I think. So I've known Alex for a while, and he's been gracious enough to come on the podcast a few times, especially at key moments in his career. Last time was just after he had free soloed the free rider and the movie wasn't out or anything. It just had just kind of happened. He was still high as a kite when he came on, actually. I mean, you know, on, you know, adrenaline, good vibes, not anything else. He's a clean living gentleman. So yeah, I am happy to report that it seems as though Alex Honnold is the same guy that we grew to know and love as a climber. Yeah, I just really enjoyed catching up with him, frankly. And I hope you guys do too. It's a, it's a little bit of an old-fashioned, uh, really very conversational Enorma cast. No real dark side to this one. Just a lot of fun. And also enjoy another vintage Alex Honnold commercial. I've used Alex Honnold in a lot of my commercials because he's sponsored by both of my sponsors. But I think he's a little unwitting to this. I don't, I don't know that he knows that I, uh, that I have a little fun with his reputation occasionally in my commercials. So. No calls from his lawyers yet. All right, let's get to it. 
Hey folks, have you fiends seen the Don Waller free solo yet? Well, spoiler alert. The one thing all the principal climbers in those amazing films have in common besides the bedhead and spectacular abs are TC pros from Sportiva. That's right. Those fellows trusted their dreams to the face and crack shoe designed by Caldwell himself to tackle the big stone all day, every day. And Tommy wants your dreams to come true, too. So if you want to stick to rock like your elbows stick to the table at Golden Corral, and you want your toes to luxuriate inside cracks like it's their home... That's your home! Are you too good for your home? Then check out the TC Pros and all of Sportiva's great shoes at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. And yeah, TC stands for Tommy Caldwell. Am I the only one that took a while to figure that out? Oh, um, we did one we did, in your house or something, yeah, didn't way we? way early. Yeah, like couple years in you were up for the five point so when we spoke in lander that was the second time i was on the yeah, that was the second time yeah, oh yeah okay exactly yeah classic yeah. The, you don't even remember yeah we <laughs> we it, it was in my kitchen in, in this house i lived in it was before i had a kid or any of that stuff no i, I do remember um, didn't you have yeah. burritos for us or something yeah i think i, we I faintly did. Rem- i faintly remember yeah. like a nice mm-hmm. burrito yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I felt you were a little bit more on the wing back then, so I felt like I had to feed you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Next time I'll bring you a burrito. Okay, cool. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. So that was the first one. And then the second one, I actually looked it up. It was in July. Uh, I posted it anyway, July 25th of 2017. And, and I, we, we did it in Lander, so it would have been like the second weekend of July that we actually spoke. And it was only... Uh, I don't know, a few weeks after you had done your solo at Bell Cap. And you were basically, oh, yeah. I, I kind of dipped in and listened to a few minutes of it. And you're like out of this world stoked still, actually. I am classic. Yeah. Classic. So I, I, you were, cool. it was like 7.30 in the morning too. And of course you were, you were ready to go. Um, but yeah, I just remember remarking even in the intro about how like visibly sort of amped you still were from it all. <laughs> That's funny. I, I should listen again. I bet that'd be I bet that'd be enjoyable for me. Yeah, if you like dip in anywhere in it, you'll you'll get the vibe in a couple minutes. Um, is, that's kind of all I did. And uh, but uh, but yeah, and it was funny because you know, and this is sort of like a good place to start is um, you know, just the amount of changes that have come to your life since then is pretty wild. And and the funny thing is, is of course you had done the you'd done El Cap, but you know the movie was nowhere to be seen yet you couldn't really even talk about it although you did and and I always wondered if you got in trouble for that um <laughs> but it, it you know the film wasn't out and so it was still like a pretty you know sort of climby story even though like I remember the big thing was either you were going on Kimmel or you had been on Kimmel you know getting on Kimmel seemed like a big deal and it's kind of funny to think about it now <laughs> yeah yeah that's, that's, it's fair to say that the whole Oscar Stewart sort of outdid the the being on Kimmel experience <laughs> clearly yeah you know and, and even that like back you had been on like Rogan that one time and that seemed like a big deal too so all these sorts of things like are gradations of of what's happened to you since so um but anyway welcome back uh and I appreciate you taking the time to uh to get on this thing uh, once again, three years later. Uh, yeah, no, it's almost uh, four years later. Yeah, I appreciate you having me back. You know, it's uh, the Enormicast is still the the height of of climbing media. You know, it's always an honor to make an appearance. <laughs> quote. I just got an awesome pull quote. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Use it, use it. <laughs> and the other thing is, I remember um, there was at some point we were bantering. There was some some curiosity about your numbers compared to Tommy Caldwell's. Um, oh. So I went ahead and looked it up. And uh, you are, you are, for your one episode anyway, the, the second one, um, you're beating him. 
his is out a little bit longer, but pretty darn close considering your level of fame compared to his now. So I think it's a tip of the hat to at least to Tommy keeping up. Actually, it's really a, a tip of the hat to the type of people that listen to the Enormacast. You know, it's like a relatively hardcore climbing audience where they don't really care about a movie tour. They're just like, yeah, yeah. it's the Tommy Caldwell. He's the man. I'm like, right. yeah, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> it, it, he's he's become this sort of like, I don't know, this deep ambassador to the sport. It's pretty wild. But um, but anyway, but yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, just the changes to your life and a little bit about how you um, how you sort of have handled the last four years and um if you think of if you think about it if it's if it's the change changed you at all and if it's changed the way you look at climbing yeah i don't know what this is this is going to be like uh it's gonna be like therapy i'm just gonna lay mm-hmm. down here and we can just chat for for hours about like what does it all mean like well, has the, it changed my relationship to climbing i'm like i don't know i don't think so <laughs> but we'll see well i mean this is a climbing podcast so what i'd love you to do is relax and realize that you know you don't have to explain the difference between free climbing and free soloing is um honestly i've done so many i've done so many public appearances since then that uh it's impossible for me not to define free soloing anytime i talk about climbing now my guess so, so that's the one where you uh don't use the rope to assist you in any way you know right like yeah, yeah our our folks know what that's all about so um <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, the changes have have been fast and furious and, uh, you know, you live in Vegas now and, um, yeah. So talk a little bit about your relationship with climbing, uh, these days. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, definitely in some ways there've been a lot of changes in other ways. It's not that big a difference. I mean, I went sport climbing this morning. I I had a, I had a work thing this afternoon, which like this kind of thing is really different. Like I, I was doing like a corporate speaking thing for Morgan Stanley this afternoon, which you're sort of like, huh, like that's unusual. Like that's not standard for the climbing world but um <laughs> but it's kind of become more common post free solo film tour because so many companies want you to talk about you know lessons in leadership and things like that and and uh you know like managing risk and whatever else but on the other hand day-to-day life is is pretty much the same i mean i snuck into red rock this morning to try a, a route that i've that I, I seem to try every couple of years and, and just fail on every every couple of years. It's like this Tommy Lawn route. It's really reachy and I just can't do it. And so oh. I tried it a couple of times this morning and it was pretty freaking cold and windy and it was kind of raining a tiny bit. Not really raining, but like it was just the clouds were moving so fast. It was like you, it was kind of heinous. And uh, I was like, yep, still getting worked. Still can't do the route. And then went and did a little work this afternoon. I'm just like, yeah, it's just normal day to day life, you know. And uh, you, you call Vegas home permanently, yeah? Yeah, yeah. My... I mean, my now wife and I have just fully, fully live here. What was the the idea behind moving there versus you were kind of based in Tahoe before, weren't you? No, I was never really based That's in still- Tahoe. My uh, my family, like my grandfather built a cabin in Tahoe oh, uh, okay. in like the 40s. So I'd spent summers there growing up uh, and it was sort of like the family, like all my cousins and, you know, my family had spent time there. And so... Um, I was never based there, but I just kind of had a background of going there. But the thing is, Tahoe just isn't really a great permanent home for climbing, I don't think, mm-hmm. because there just isn't that great at rock climbing. It's, you know, it's it's like a lovely place to be and a really nice place to recreate outdoors. But the actual rock climbing, I mean, Vegas, you know, within a two hour drive of my home in Vegas are some of the hardest routes in the country. I mean, it's literally a lifetime of climbing that I'll I'll never be able to do. You know, like right. Jumbo Love is an hour away. And like an hour the other direction, you have, you know, other 9A to 9B type of routes and projects. And it's like, it's basically the hardest stuff in the country. Yeah. So it sounds like you've embraced um, sport climbing uh, quite a bit in the last few years. A little bit, but no, I mean, actually this winter I was, this winter I was on a strict uh, bouldering and soloing program where I was mostly bouldering and then, and then going soloing on my rest days and stuff. 
So um, no, I've been, I've been mixing it up quite a bit. It's just there happens to be a lot of really good sport climbing around Vegas, so it's easy to sort of fall into that because it's such a nice day-to-day sort of climbing activity. I know. I did read the um, – at least at some point a couple of years ago, you had uh, sort of an open goal of, of climbing – I think it was 9A yeah. um, with sport climbing. Did you achieve that? I forget. Yeah, yeah, I did a route that was supposedly 9A in the guide, but I think realistically it's probably 8C+. Plus. So, uh, you know, it's probably 14C, but, but uh, you know, sometimes, th- though actually it's true that pretty much all of my first of the grades have been, in retrospect, incredibly easy. Because like my first 14A, actually my first 13D and 14A, I think were in Maple, and having gone back as more of an adult and repeated them, I'm sort of like, I think these are 13C. You know, I'm sort of like, oh, well, like I think the first 14A I did, I, I would call 13C in my journal now. But, you know, All I'm right. kind of like, you know what? But since then, I've climbed, I don't, I don't know, like 100 other 514s or something. So it doesn't really matter. You know, that's just strategic, dude. You got to find <laughs> well, the one. You know? <laughs> well, it wasn't even <laughs> strategic the at door. the time. Well, I <laughs> no. think actually, in some ways, it's uh, by definition, the first one you do will often be easier just because you're able to do it sooner because it is easier. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's sort of this wild thing to contemplate um, kind of, you know, who you are as far as someone myself like myself, who's, who's, you know, followed media my whole life, at least what media was, you know, 25 years ago, which was books and magazines, but, you know, sort of this far and away thing that we've never kind of seen before. It's like, you're practically, I mean, you are kind of this climbing meme. Um, and it's interesting that I was like, know, how, I, how I far said, I've fallen, I've become a well, climbing meme. I'm like, I know, oh, but no. it's, like, <laughs> it's just kind of, it's just kind of wild for me to contemplate. And I'm, and I'm curious if like, if you contemplate those sorts of things and, and, uh, or if you're just kind of pretty, you know, focused on remaining sort of who you are and, and in touch with your roots and, and sort of what it's like to kind of manage it all. In some ways, I think that, that my whole scene now just more resembles normal people who are really into rock climbing, but also have a job. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, I just have more, more time commitments. Like I do other things for work. I have obligations to like show up at things and, and speak or work or, you know, write things or whatever else. But the reality is that that's the experience that almost all climbers have. You know I mean? Most of my friends are working professionals. You know, there's like a, a nurse or a doctor or something who gets mm-hmm. a certain number of days off each week and then goes as hard as they can when they, when they have time to climb. And you know, I still have more time than average to climb because, you know, I'm, I'm still climbing like five or six days a week. But I just have more extra things on the side to do. But, you know, that's fine, though. I mean, I'm totally into that because the thing is the whole dirtbag rock climber thing is great to a point. But, you know, I don't want to be 65 and still living in a van and, you know, unable to support my family and like struggling, basically. And the thing is, I mean, there there are plenty of examples of that from the last generation. I mean, you look at the Stone Masters and there are plenty of examples of folks who just didn't quite plan for later in their life that well and didn't really have you know, much of a strategy. And, you know, I totally respect like living in the moment and having a good time and chasing first ascents and doing all that. But at a certain point, you just can't do it forever. You know, and, and I just don't think I'd want to. Like, I sometimes think about this. I mean, you just mentioned being in climbing media for 25 years. Like, mm-hmm. I've also been climbing 25 years. And at this point, I've been a professional climber for sort of 14, maybe. And, you know, I'm 35. And realistically, I'll likely be a professional climber into my 50s or something. So that means I'm less than halfway there. I'm kind of like, man, if I think about doing all the things that I've done again, you know, just doubling the pace of and, and scale of rock climbing that I've done, it makes me kind of tired to think about, you know, I'm like, dude, I've <laughs> done so much climbing in the last 14, 15 years. I'm like, if I had to do all of it again, I'm like, God damn, like that's a lot of climbing. 
I mean, I guess that begs the question of, of, of how you do keep your motivation, you know, to stay fit and to have kind of big goals. I know you have one right now. What, what's sort of your deal there? Is that, is that pretty organic? I mean, is it something that you have to dig for occasionally or is it, is it still just like a, a innate sort of desire to get out there and, and be a rock climber? Yeah, I think, uh, I think occasionally you have to dig for it for sure. But overall, well, I think I always want to go climbing. Like I, I love going climbing. Like in my ideal world, I would have limitless new sport crags around me with like routes from 13A to 14A where I could just spend tons of time on siding and, and just like play on new tufas every day. You know, mm-hmm. sadly, Europe has been closed for a long time. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I don't really have that available. But I mean, in terms of just having fun climbing, you know, I, I still I still love that just as much. I don't know. I mean, I guess part of it is that a lot of the the obvious big goals at this point I've already done. And beyond that, it's just really hard. You know, it's like some of the things that, that are left for me where I'm like, oh, that's, you know, an obvious challenge that I should maybe do. Like there's a reason I haven't done it. It's because it's either would take a tremendous amount of time or effort or or it seems really scary or whatever else. You know, it's just, you know, I think about it and I'm like, man, you know, I could do that, but it re- represents months of work or something. You're kind of like, yeah, I probably will at some point in my life. But it's like, Boy, it sounds like a lot of effort. I think the way to paraphrase that is that I've kind of mm-hmm. picked a lot of the low-hanging fruit. Well, I mean, actually, you know, Tommy on the Dawn Wall is a good example. It's like, you know, I mean, he spent seven years working on this sort of futuristic life project. And I'm kind of, yeah. you know, I'm at the point where if I want to do things that are really hard for me or really new, you know, I might wind up spending seven years working on a futuristic life project. And I just don't know if I quite have the work ethic that Tommy does. You know, I'm like, right. man, like he's willing to just grind it out for seven years. But I'm like, I think I'd rather go sport climbing. Uh, the, the other kind of question I had with, um, you know, and we'll sort of move on from the from the kind of life you're leading. But what about the the recognition thing? You know, before free solo, there was there was still tons of recognition kind of within, you know, the climbing world. Right. It was like, OK, there's Alex, Alex Honnold, among other climbers at the cliff and, and, um, you know, it probably had some level of kind of like, okay, that person recognizes me, that person, I mean, it happens to you Norma Cass too, let me tell yeah. you, but, um, <laughs> only when I, when I start talking, but, uh, you know, but then it just went exponential and I feel like, you know, with something as big as free soul of the movie, you know, an Oscar winning film, you know, the whole nine yards, it's like all sorts of groups of people sort of wanted to kind of identify with you and associate with you and probably hopefully, you know, get a pick or have a word with, with Alex Honnold. And, and I was just kind of curious, again, looking at some guy who got to just play around in Yosemite, living in his van, you know, to a level anonymous to that kind of level. What, what has that been like to be someone who's like recognized on the streets? Cause that's never happened to another rock climber i can almost guarantee it no i think it's probably happened to some i mean or at least in europe there's certainly a precedent because you look mm-hmm, at somebody mm-hmm. like patrick Gallanger who wound up being like a french national hero i think that my whole scene sure and the, and the switch Solo, machine too yeah exactly um, Uli or, or, or yeah, reinhold mesner sure. i think reinhold mesner was elected to european parliament or something wasn't he? yeah he had like, to move into a castle though to, yeah <laughs> to get away from <laughs> no he, not just move in but he made a castle that's a museum <laughs> right. to his own legacy as a climber you're like dude that's next level like when i when i open a castle museum about my own climbing i'm like that's 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 pretty then you're that's over special <laughs> yeah, then, then that's... yeah well because because his castle versus the one you'd build in vegas would be 
vastly different. <laughs> yeah, his his castle is a lot more stately than anything I could build in Vegas. But... It would be some sort of like hollow facsimile of a castle <laughs> yeah, exactly. that would be down right next to the Luxor. No, it'd be next to the Excalibur. You know, that's already a fake Bingo. castle downtown. It's so it's so cheesy. But no, when you're I 75, think, I think they'll though, be like. There's a Vegas residency we've been holding for you, Mr. Honnold. <laughs> oh, no, I think, like I think your, uh, your real question, though, is that, I mean, like you said, there's already a fair amount of recognition in the climbing world. So for me, it's kind of been this long, gradual transition. Mm-hmm. Or it's like been sort of steadily scaling up. Because I actually remember the very first time anybody recognized me. And it was like years before any media. I was like, I was at an In-N-Out burger in California. I still remember. That's back when I started meet, you know. And it was like kind of a long time ago. And uh, and this random guy in line was like, are you, you know, like, I don't know. He somehow knew something about climbing, you know, probably from some like early real rock film or something. Maybe mm-hmm. the Bant Film Festival. And, uh, sure. and I was like, that's crazy. You know, like someone just, I don't know. And then from there, it's just steadily escalated. And so I think that, that yeah, I mean, certainly the free solo film tour has changed the the scale of that kind of thing but it's not it's still just like more of the same in some way has there been like crazy offers are you have you been offered like acting roles and things like that <laughs> uh not acting. i mean i can only imagine <laughs> i mean not maybe even not serious but like i can only imagine well if you've seen the film free solo you know i'm the world's worst actor <laughs> so, <you laughs> that know. doesn't matter honestly has there been that kind of stuff yeah no all kinds of weird life experience <laughs> stuff i mean you know, most notable, which is going to the Oscars and things like that. But, um, yeah. but like going to the BAFTAs, you know, the British Academy Awards, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we met uh, like Prince William and, and Princess Kate or whatever her name is. You know, you're like, it's crazy. You're Kate like, Middleton. Yeah. 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 You're like shaking hands with royalty and you're sort of like, huh, like what an unusual <laughs> path from living in the band and rock climbing too much. So last year uh, or the year now, a year and a half ago, um, but basically in the winter pre-COVID, I spoke at the Nobel Prize ceremony, not at the actual, uh, basically surrounding the Nobel Prize Awards. They have like all kinds Mm of uh, events and panels and things. And so I spoke at the Nobel Prize. And so I went to the Nobel Prize dinner where they like award the the Nobel laureates. And you wear this crazy like white tux with tails and the whole, I mean, it's totally insane. It's, you know, it's in Stockholm in the winter or whatever. It's all, it's like, what an unusual life experience. Like, why am I here? Don't know, but I'm giving a little talk and I'm enjoying the whole thing. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's been plenty of stuff like that. Probably, you know, just taking it as it comes and and being interested in what's going on around you. Yeah, the, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I mean, it's easy to have major imposter syndrome with that stuff because especially, mm-hmm. say, at the Nobel Prize ceremony where everyone there is is arguably, you know, a collection of the smartest people in the world. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, you know, I made it through uh, two semesters of university before I went and lived in my <laughs> van. But uh, otherwise, I don't technically know anything about anything, though I, though I like to read a lot. You know, you're kind of like, oh, man, like, what am I doing here? But, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> it, to some extent, though, you just show up and you talk about the things that you know well and and uh, and try to learn as much as you can and enjoy the experience and just see where it all goes. Yeah. But, and I feel lucky that, like, you know, we, we still have something of a relationship where, you know, we, we sort of text occasionally, very, very infrequently. But, um, and, you know, and, and I arranged this with you directly, but um, you must have sort of people sort of putting up a screen against uh or not against but but sort of fielding all this stuff yeah well uh, I don't, uh, yeah, yeah the I, no, nobel 
you know, the Nobel <laughs> committee's not just like, hey, texting you up like, yo, bro, you want to come to Sweden? Though if the Nobel <laughs> committee texted me directly, I would definitely just go immediately and be like, oh, my God, they texted me. But yeah, it, actually, it, it's still the most effective way for me to do anything is if someone just texts me because as soon as I see it directly on my own phone, I'm like, yeah, sure, I can do that. Let's let's do it on Tuesday, you know, oh, cool. whereas yeah, um, yeah. whereas. I, I do have a team now. I have, you know, a manager and agent and things like that. And, and uh, it does help me screen a lot of things because so much of the stuff that gets thrown my way, like I personally wouldn't really know how to, to triage, you know, like I mm-hmm. get a lot of random TV offers and things like that where someone wants to like pitch a pilot to a network of like a certain type of climbing show. And I'm like, right. I have no idea how to vet the production company or the network or, you know, it's like, I don't know anything about all that stuff. And realistically, I don't want to know that much about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I went through the whole free solo film tour sort of intentionally trying not to learn too much about the whole Hollywood PR scene because I was like, I don't, you know, it's like my goal in life is to be as good of a climber as I can be. Like, I never want to work in Hollywood PR. Like, I think it's all, I don't want to say it's heinous because, you know, I enjoyed working with all the folks we worked with, but it's like, it's its own world and not one that I necessarily want to be a part of. So, you know, you kind of have to focus on your on your your strengths or at least your passions to some extent Mm -hmm. you know stick to Mm -hmm. the things that you actually want to work on to me it seems like you know what happened with free solo the film it it was put into the hands of the of the sort of the best people possible in that it wasn't some big kind of out of climbing production but rather it was a climbing production that then sort of got picked up and um you know i can only imagine that working with jimmy chin and um Chai Vassarelli was like a, a a perfect way to kind of dip your toe into this whole other world. Totally. And and not just Jimmy and Chai, but then, you know, it's being financed by National Geographic, which has a, a strong history of, of working with, you know, sort of fringe exploratory sort of, you know, it's like obviously a company like Nat Geo is, is comfortable taking a certain amount of risk in their productions and, and, mm-hmm. and dealing with uncertain outcomes. Because, I mean, throughout the filming of Free Solo, it's like, you know, nobody really knew if i was ever actually gonna free solo all cap i mean i certainly mm-hmm. didn't you know i knew i wanted to but whether or not i actually could you know sort of remain to be seen and so to have a production company that that's comfortable with those risks and and then to be working with people who i feel comfortable with you know it was all sort of the ideal team for that kind of film to come together yeah certainly and it's like a it's like kind of a wild alternate you know reality thought experiment to think about if you had you know, if you had free sold El Cap the way you had done so many of your other free solos, especially early on where you just went and did it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then kind of like let the information leak out into the climbing world versus, you know, what you did do, which, I, you know, on, on the show that you did with me previously, I remember you talking about the choice to allow these folks to film you. And, and, and then you even talked about some pressure to not let them down once the production got underway because they were your friends. And, and even the folks that hadn't previously been your friends had become your friends during, you know, this lead up to when you were going to do it. Um, so it's just yeah, I mean, kind of and, wild to like it, do that thought experiment about well, like what, what would have happened if you had just done the normal thing? You know? in, in a lot of ways that, that pressure of not wanting to let your friends down is kind of the whole point of, of having a film or, you know, ha- of bringing your friends in is to have that accountability you know, in the sure. same way that, that you tell your friends when you sign up for a marathon or something, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I want my friends to hold me accountable. So I actually do this thing that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Because otherwise, you know, I mean, with free solo or with free selling El Cap in particular, 
you know, I'd thought about it for years and never done it because it's so when you're keeping it totally secret, it's really easy to just keep punting, you know, be like, ah, you know, this isn't the year that seems a little scary, but it's like, once you start to bring people into it, then you feel a little worse about punting and you're like, all right, well, at least try, I'll put some work in. I'll, you know, I can't give up without even trying. (laughs) And so then, Mm -hmm. and, and that was kind of, I mean, that was a big part of bringing in the film teams. You're like, oh, you know, I wanted to do it, but I just needed some help. Basically I needed like some Mm -hmm. extra oomph to like get it done. I mean, do you have sort of a mental strategy with that? Because like, you know, lately you've been teasing sort of a Red Rocks link up solo. Our mutual friend, Andrew Bisharat, you know, was involved in kind of some training for that. And, uh, but you know, do you have like a little bit of a calculation of like how much you tease to kind of keep yourself motivated well, or so, is it just, so no, it's just part of the deal now? Yeah, it's really interesting. So, I mean, in the past I basically didn't tease anything, but I think a lot mm-hmm. of that was my own limitation because it all felt so big and so scary and so like internally meaningful that I didn't want to talk about anything ahead of time because it just felt like too daunting and I don't know you know it felt like too much and now I'm a little more open about it I certainly talked to Sonny you know my wife about it more I talked to you know a few friends about about various ideas and projects more mostly because you know if I learned anything from the whole El Cap you know free solo film process it's that sometimes you know having a team or having having folks around helps you know i mean it's like it's helpful Mm -hmm. to bounce ideas off people and to hear to to get beta from people and to to have partners who are willing to check out sections of something with you um the the red rock link up thing that that you just sort of alluded to is a perfect example i mean i haven't been been hiding that at all i mean i've been sort of playing with this traverse of the whole range which is a super obvious thing uh, you know, to traverse the whole Red Rock skyline. And, and and a couple of people have done roughly that. There, there are a handful of like different ultra sort of ultra running link ups where you can tag a bunch of the different summits by running along the limestone crest behind. And then there have been a handful of big climbing link ups where people combine a bunch of the summits, but nobody's quite done the whole thing in like an obvious natural way. And so for me, the challenge has been trying to find a reason or or basically a way to traverse the range that makes sense where you do as much climbing as possible and as many of the named summits as possible in a way that feels uncontrived where it like makes sense to go up and over the climbing routes, uh, because that's the most, uh, you know, efficient way to navigate the terrain. So I spent mm-hmm. quite a bit of time going in and out of the canyons, trying to find efficient ways up and over things, uh, where it like feels like a straight line, but you're still doing really good climbing, you know, mm-hmm. rather than just hiking around everything. But I've been pretty open about it because it's just, it's really freaking complicated. You know, it's like, it's been really helpful to talk to people about it and to learn some beta and to like find, I found out about a handful of scrambling routes that I just didn't even know existed that wound up being Mm -hmm. pretty good direct descents off a couple of the summits. You know, I mean, basically a lot of people other than me have spent a ton of time in the canyons exploring and, you know, I may as well take advantage of their knowledge to make my project easier, basically. And is that, you know, as you've come into the Vegas scene, um, you know, has that been an easy transition to uh, to a whole new climbing community? I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like, and this you may contradict this or may not, but at least within the climbing world, I feel like you're like as close to universally loved as about any big name climber I've ever met. You know, maybe there's some detractors about your soloing. Oh, it's dangerous, and you know, you're promoting it and making all these other people try to free solo El Cap. 
Uh, not, but yeah, um, yeah, this big line at the base. <laughs> yeah, every the day base. there are people taking a number, you know, they're just waiting for their chance to solo. Up. Just yeah. waiting for their chance to whip off and yeah. do the next. But yeah, you know what I mean? There's that, there's that, but, but within like the hard, that's, that's usually from the outside. Yeah. Um, but yeah, has that, that been well received? Are you, are you sort of like, getting the beta you need and the and oh yeah the, i mean the, appreciation the you want the the vegas community the vegas climbing community that, that we're part of is incredible i mean basically they're all close personal friends i mean everybody we hang out with mm-hmm. here is is great mm-hmm. um it, it's actually interesting there's enough climbing around vegas that it, it seems like there are actually a bunch of different climbing communities here sure you know there's some people who are into the high-end sport climbing there's some people who only climb long easy trad routes in the canyons there's some people who only boulder and, you know, there's good climbing here year round, depending on the elevation. So, I mean, people just kind of do their own program all year. Like we routinely meet people at the crag who are like, oh, cool. Where are you from? And they're like, oh, we live in town. And you're like, really? I've never seen you before. Like, how long have you lived here? Like, wh- wh- where do you normally climb? You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, that happens here in Carbondale. Really? Me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Carbondale only has like a thousand people in it, doesn't it? No, well, <laughs> it's a few more than that if you take the whole valley. But point being, like, yeah, I still, I, we're, and, and we're always just flabbergasted. Like, who who was that? Yeah, totally. like, where did they come from? Carbondale but again, has I'm a, a population of 2,000, and they all climb 514. <laughs> You're kind of like, really? There's another right? one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm also a dad, you know, so I'm, I'm not exactly, like, tuned in. I climb with, like, five other old guys, and that's about it. I'm one of those people, so. Well, that, that's kind um, of the so, thing yeah. here, too, is you fall into your own little community where you climb with yeah. your five best friends in town who are on, like, uh-huh. similar programs than you. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I, I climb with Jay Star quite a bit, Jonathan Segrist, because um, mm-hmm. he lives nearby. And, you know, obviously we have similar, uh, you know, we're like into the same things. And so you just wind up like climbing with your friends a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. No, that Jay Star is just a great dude to hook into, too, because he's just a a sweet guy and, and an amazing climber. Dude, so, so good. It's like I watched yeah. him climb this, uh, <laughs> this 515 thing at, at this new wall we put up last year. And, it was kind of crazy because, I mean, you know, I've climbed a long time and I've seen a lot of good climbers, but I don't know. It was like, it was like watching a whole different sport. Like, and it's really, it was interesting because I was working on like a 14B project that day and a friend of mine who I was climbing with was working on a 14A. And then we were watching J-Star try this like 15A B type thing. I think he called it 15A, but I was like, I think it's harder, even though I haven't tried it and don't know anything about it. But I was like, dude, it looks impossible. And my point was that, you know, the, the 14As and Bs that we were trying, like, seem kind of normal where you're like, yeah, the holds are kind of small and it's kind of hard moves, but it's like, this is what climbing is kind of like. And then watching mm-hmm. what he was doing, I was like, this isn't climbing. Like, this is totally insane. There weren't any holds. Like, I didn't know what he was holding on to. Like, the clipping positions were insane. The movement was insane. He was, like, glommed onto the wall with, like, crazy opposing heels and toes and, like, tricky little bicycles and these tiny little holds. Everything about it, I was like, this is so next level. It's just interesting to see that kind of thing in person because I think for most of us as climbers, we hear and, and sort of read about hard climbing in media and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like it's just a bit harder. But then to see it's it in real life. It's just a bit harder, yeah. Yeah, totally. to see it in real life, you're like, that is, we're, we're allowed to curse, right? Like, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that is <laughs> fucked up. Like, that, it looks so hard. We we interviewed uh, at the run out the other podcast I've been doing with Andrew, um, Jonathan, and, and some people were like, well, what? You know, and I said, yeah, we're going to interview Jonathan. They're like, why are you going to interview him? Like, as in, like, has he done something, some latest thing or whatever? And I was like, no, we're just interviewing him because he's, like, basically, like, the best American rock climber Dude, out when there. Dude, uh, when he joined uh, 8A, <laughs> like, I spent years telling him to join 8A. And, uh, uh-huh. and he resisted, I think, mostly because he was, uh, like, shy about 
you know, being compared globally like that. I think he just didn't mm-hmm. want to be, you know, totally like stacked up against all the other climbers in the world. But when he finally joined, I think he was like number one or maybe he was like number two or three or something. Mm-hmm. But you're kind of like, oh, you didn't want to do this thing because you don't want to be ranked. But then when you finally do it, you're like one of the best in the world. And right. and like by far the best sport climber in the U.S. You're kind of like, dude, <laughs> you know, it's so next level. Yeah, yeah. He's, and, and he's, a, and he's a, a first ascensionist too, which is like another thing that is a little bit of a rarity among like the hardest climbers actually um there's someone that's going and bolting and doing the work too so um, not, not, a, off. not a total yeah. rarity because i mean obviously right. like chris Sharma's put up tons of hard roots and like mm-hmm. you know joe kinder's put up tons of hard roots yeah. i mean a lot of the a lot of the strongest dudes have to put up hard roots because sure, they have to find to something do. something but, they need to do yeah. but i think what's different with jstar is that he's willing to build trails and like put in work and, and like he's willing to develop whole crags and put in easy routes and stuff as well. You know, he's not just putting in futuristic projects. He's also just like filling in the wall with like, you know, here's a classic 13 minus and here's a couple of great 511 warmups. And, mm-hmm, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's pretty good about like establishing new areas, not just bolting his own projects. Yeah. He, so he's, he's a man who's no. not afraid to hike really far and do hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate him. Actually, as long as we're talking about other climbers, um, in your life or, or in your purview, what were your thoughts on, um, on Sean's back solo of the, uh, of the Fitz Traverse, um, Dude. having been the, 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 the person who, one of the two people who pioneered that thing. It's, it's so amazing. It's, uh, no, it's incredible. I was on an expedition in, in Guyana climbing to Tapui and, uh, I came out right. from the jungle and, and sort of like caught up on the news, you know, like got internet for the first time. And I saw that and was like, Whoa, like that's something, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I really missed something meaningful while I was away. So, um, mm-hmm. no, I think, I think soloing the reverse fits, uh, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, it's hard to totally compare to what Tommy and I did because conditions were totally different and the strategy mm-hmm. was totally different and, and the roots are different because you're going the other direction. So, you know, he was climbing all the walls that we repelled and, and he was repelling the walls that we climbed. Sure. And so, I don't know, but then he was also doing it at the very, very end of a dry season, I think. I haven't talked to him about it, but I got the impression that, that the roots were really dry when he was doing them. Whereas Tommy and I were doing them during the first weather window of that year. And so it meant that everything was super icy still, but we were climbing the sunny side. So what we were climbing was kind of okay, but the stuff we were repelling was totally insane, like covered in ice and everything. It felt really extreme. So when we did it, it was hard to imagine even possibly climbing those walls because they're just, they look so scary and covered in ice. But I think when Sean climbed them, you know, they were dry. So presumably it wasn't quite as heinous. But, um, I don't know. I mean, to spend that much time by yourself, just questing through the mountains like that. I mean, it must've been just an incredible experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an elevated thing. What he did. It's pretty interesting to me to talk to someone like yourself who has a, a glimpse of what that's like, but expeditioning like that for however many days hasn't necessarily really ever been your thing in terms of soloing anyway. No, not really. It's funny. Actually, I was, I was chatting with one of my friends about it, and I think that probably the key element of of his success on the reverse fits was just going in there with sort of an open heart and no expectations and just adventuring mm-hmm. for as long as he possibly could. And uh, and I was chatting with with someone saying, I think that that's kind of what I would need to bring to the to the Red Rock Traverse if I ever actually did it. You know, instead of focusing on like speed or time or like any kind of performance metric, just go into it as like I'm about to spend a very long time adventuring through the desert and just see how it feels you know, and just, and just let the whole experience unfold, you know, because I think that's, that's ultimately what he did. It's just like, I'll just keep going until I can't anymore. And, and he was just able to keep going the whole time. 
it sounds like the the traverse you're talking about or, or however you want to put it the link up it seems like a perfect project because it's there in your backyard yeah, and, yeah. and that that very thing can happen and then you can go home and you can come back well and, and in some I ways mean, actually that's that's what happened with sean on the fitz traverse right. too i mean he's been there sure. the whole year so it's like he's been able to do some of the sections and and think about it a lot and piece it together and i'm sure he's been hiking and looking at it a lot so i mean it has kind of been his backyard for the last year and I, mm-hmm. I think that really helps with big things like that is like the more time you spend, the more familiar it all becomes, the the less daunting it seems. Yeah. And in fact, I talked to him and, and it was very much that like this little germ in his brain. And then, you know, by building up some experience in there that season and, and you know, like a like a backcountry skier or somebody else, like looking at the conditions every day and yeah, exactly. understanding what changes and how it changes and you know, how the mountains sort of act, um, added up to him making the attempt and then, you know, get, getting a, a, an excellent weather window. And, and he was also very humble about what you said about having, you know, really excellent conditions and, uh, and being able to, to, you know, exploit those. Um, but, you but know, that, but that down really there, that's all it. part of the strategy, you know, that's all part of the game down there. It's, it's part of the skill of being in those mountains, I think. Yeah, I mean, Tommy and I also got incredibly lucky with a long enough weather window that we were able to mm-hmm. spend, you know, five days climbing across the range or whatever. No, I think that really speaks to Sean, you know, his his personality. He's like, oh, you know, I just got lucky with conditions. And you're like, well, you also yeah. climbed all day by yourself up and down every spire. It's like totally for, insane. For six days or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> you climbed and then hauled and then cleaned you know right like every wall in patagonia by yourself in a single push you're like yeah i mean i guess you got lucky with the weather but uh you know it's also like a lifetime of skill that plays into that i mean he's a special person there's no doubt about yeah, that. yeah yeah for sure for sure, for sure yeah when, when he and nico did the first ascent of uh the secret passage on el cap uh, at the time i was climbing the zodiac wall style in a in a failed free attempt and uh it was funny because every time i looked over they would be like a pitch or two higher with their portal edge set up, like playing their flute and like having a good time. And I basically never saw them try or toil in any way. And I was over on the Zodiac, like hauling and being like, Oh my back, you know, and like the bags are tangled and the ropes are tangled. And, you know, I'm yelling back and forth with my partner, like what's up with the lead line? What's up with the, you know, it's all kind of a junk show. And then you look right. over and then you're like, Oh, two guys just like magically floated up another 200 feet. They're laying out there totally relaxed, playing their flutes, like having a nice time. I was like, what the fuck? Like who were those guys? <laughs> you know, like I didn't, I didn't know them as well at the time. And uh, I was like, man, they just made it all seem so effortless yeah they got some sort of just badass vibe the two of them yeah they they really do an outrageous amount of skill and they also complement each other in this uh i think really fascinating way of you know you know nico's such this hotshot climber and when it comes down to it you you kind of forget almost with the freaking mandolin and the yeah i know all the other things like how like just excellent of a freaking rock climber he is dude i was um speaking of nico an excellent (laughs) rock climber i was like chatting with him after one of their trips to baffin i think and he was talking about putting up some big new free route on granite where he was like oh you know the crux pitch i worked on for three days and at the time i called it 7c so like you know 12d granite vertical whatever and then uh he was like but then when i got home i found that i was routinely on-siding 8a plus of the same style you know so like routinely (laughs) on-siding 13c like vertical which i was like First off, how sandbagged is his route? And then second off, I was like, how many people say that they routinely onsite 13C vert routes? You know, I was like, geez. I was like, <laughs> I was like, what the heck? And especially because he's not even considered like an elite sport climber, really. You know, I mean, he's kind of known as an elite big wall climber. But you're like, man, if you're routinely onsiting 13C vert, like that's that's pretty badass. 
Yeah, that's what I mean, though. He's like, uh, we forget, but he yeah, was yeah, you for know, sure. this incredibly elite competition climber and everything else. But, you know, then there's the there's the damn mandolin. Yeah, know? I know. So it's like you, you kind of have chill. a tendency to forget. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to learn an instrument. That's how, that's how this is going to go. Your El Capo sense will be much better if you bring your accordion. The, the two of them um, always make you feel so... jams out. The, the, those guys <laughs> just make you feel so untalented. You know, you're like, you guys are so good at so many things and you make it all seem so easy. I'm like, why is yeah. it all so hard for me? You're like, man. Um, are you able to talk at all about the, the trip down to the Tapuis? Yeah, yeah, totally. I don't think anything... Uh, I mean, so it was technically for National Geographic and it, it'll be mm-hmm. an episode of uh, Nat Geo Explorer. I think it comes out in the fall or something. But, um, but I don't think there's anything, you know, secret about it. I mean, um, sure. it was, yeah, it was a great trip. We, we climbed a new wall, had a nice time. It was, it was cool. Yeah. And you went down there. I actually just talked to Sinat um, oh, cool. a couple day, a couple, actually he's the, the last episode reconnecting with him after years. Cause I climbed with him in Yosemite, uh, <laughs> back in the day, bit. back in the day, <laughs> yeah. people still aid climbed. I know. Uh, yeah, cap. exactly. Yeah. So I, I, he, you know, he mentioned a little bit, mostly we were talking about his new book, but, um, it sounded like a wild trip. Yeah, it was it was definitely a wild trip. I mean, it was a full. I mean, there's like a ton to unpack in the trip. It's like because technically mm-hmm. there was the biology component with uh, you know we were the, with this renowned biologist, and then there's also the climbing the wall part. And then I mean, for me personally, there was all I just read a bunch of books also because there's so much time in the hammock uh, on the trip because right. you know it's the tropics, so it's dark at six p.m. and you're like, well, time to read another book. And uh, actually, and part of it was because I was on the trip with with Mark and Renan, both of whom I've traveled with a ton over the years. And, uh, and for whatever reason on this trip, I was like, I just don't feel like hanging around the campfire and like hearing stories, you know, it's like, I'm just going to put on noise canceling headphones and read my book. And I basically did that for the whole trip. And I wound up reading eight books. <laughs> so I got a classic, <laughs> but I was like, it's kind of a good strategy because, you know, it's like, it was super fun hanging out with them. Cause you know, we've had a lot of great experiences over the years and like had cool trips and gone on good adventures. But at a certain point, you know, you're like, you just don't need to hear the same story again, you know? You're like, I'm just going to read this book. So you talked a little bit earlier about, well, having agents or whatever to, to vet these oddball projects that get sent your way. What what about your climbing projects in terms of, you know, something like going on that trip or, you know, participating in North Face trips or things like that? What what do you sort of look for or screen as far as um, as expedition styles? And, and maybe you haven't had to do that as much because of the pandemic recently. Yeah, but, yeah a lot of that but, has you know, just been the, limited. You know, what's in your head usually when you when you think about a trip like that? Normally, normally I think about the team and the objective and and just, you know, sort of an emotional component of like, am I excited about it? And so the thing with with the Tapui trip in, in Guyana was that I've always wanted to climb a Tapui. I basically I've never been in the jungle uh, or not really. And so it was cool to go to a totally new landscape. It's cool to climb sort of a unique geological feature. And then I knew the team was good because, you know, I've climbed with with uh, Mark and Renan quite a bit in the past. And then also you always kind of mix in the reality of it too. Like, does it fit well with your schedule or like, you know, what's the, sure. what's the opportunity cost. And in, in this case, you know, it's a pandemic. It's like, I'm not missing anything else. Like I've had literally no trips in a year. And because this was put on by Nat Geo, they have like full producers, like fixers, you know, sort of making it all happen, making sure that the travel is safe and that it's all according to the rules and that everything's fine. And so I was kind of like, man, if someone's willing to take me on a trip to somewhere I've always wanted to go with people that I'm psyched to climb with, it's like, that all sounds great. You know, like I'm into that. What was your uh, interface with the jungle like? That's always usually a story that comes out of these trips as being, you know, something that can be soul crushing or or livening or what. 
I found it slightly depressing and slightly dreary because you're just in like a hallway all the time. You just can't see mm-hmm. anything. And I mean, I'm used to Vegas where the, you have these expansive views at all time and the mountains are surrounding you all the time. It's like really beautiful. Um, like you have a beautiful sunset every night. And in the jungle, it's like we walked for 10 days on the way in or something without ever seeing anything except for trees and canopy. And you're like, geez, it's kind of grim. But no, I, I was into it. Actually, I kind of thought that a lot of the jungle stories of, of crazy wildlife and like crushing bugs and all that was uh, maybe a little bit overstated. But I think that was maybe because we were experiencing the dry season in a particular okay. area. I, I was told by by some folks on the trip that um, like if you're in the Amazon basin, uh, you know, we, we were in Guyana, so it's not technically the Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. If you're like in the Amazon during the wet season, it can be just soul crushing. But that's definitely not the experience we had. I found it all like relatively pleasant. Yeah, because that's, the, uh, that's uh, what... relatively. I mean, the, right. then like relatively. being in the mud kind of like wears you down being sort of dirty all the time having nothing ever dry like i mentioned my noise canceling headphones that i was listening to every night my uh, my case started molding like it just like grew a full-on mold colony on the the soft case to my headphones and i was like oh man but there's no way to dry it because there's no it's just like humid all the time so over the right, course of the right. trip i just had like this whole colony like growing on my headphones and i was like well i guess you know it's just that's just the way it is here what's your sort of interface with filming now i asked i actually asked mark the same same uh kind of question about you know what his feelings about being filmed are because it it sort of you know it can sort of change things although you had a very unique experience with that on el cap you know with with people trying to i I remember explaining to you explained to me how there there was you know all this concern about not interfacing with you or or trying to interface with you as little as possible or not not compromising my experience too much i mean they definitely put a lot of effort into making sure i had a good experience on the actual climb yeah. So how are your, you know, how are your skills with that now? Is it, is it sort of becoming natural because it seems like it's, you know, you're going on trips where, you know, you're not allowed to just disappear into a place and, and come back out. Anymore. Well, I don't know. I mean, actually this guy on a trip is a perfect example of, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if Mark talked about it, but on the trip, I mean, so we were filming for this TV episode and you know, the, the story for the, the episode has to do with doing the first ascent and like getting up this unclimbed wall but the reality of shooting a TV episode is that you have to fix lines and like spend more time, you know, reshooting things and, and like dealing, you know, it's just like more uh, like it's not like you're just going to climb something alpine style because you can't right. you can't shoot it at all. And which is totally fine. I'm, I'm fine with going slower on that kind of thing. But it meant that I had plenty of time to like clean the pitches and sort of prep them. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, uh, I mean, no one's ever free soloed at Tapu. You know, it's kind of like, oh, if it's possible, I may as well at least you know, try or at least like set myself up to give this an effort. And so, um, while we were there, I managed to, to free solo the route we put up also, which is like a six pitch 12 B or something, um, which was awesome. The climbing was incredible. The rocks incredible. It was this great experience. It was really freaking cool. Um, wasn't filmed at all for the TV thing because it doesn't really fit with the TV story. You know, it's like one of those things where it's not when you're shooting a story about, doing a first ascent and, and working on conservation efforts and, you know, like wildlife biology things, it, you know, it doesn't really make sense to be like, and then this random dude just like climbed the thing again without a rope. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, as a climber, if I'm in a place and I have the opportunity to do something, you know, meaningful for climbing, I'm like, of course I'm going to take advantage of that. And so, sure. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing with filming is you got to look at it as, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a job because that's slightly too cynical, but you're like, yeah, you know, the reality is if you're filming something, it's going to be a slightly different experience, but that doesn't mean that you mm-hmm, can't mm-hmm. still have a good experience doing what you want to do as a climber. 
That's awesome. I mean, is are you breaking that right now? Have you told anybody else about this? Any other media about this free solo tapui? Uh, I don't know. I don't think um I don't think I posted about it. I think Renan I don't know if there were pictures or anything. Um huh. Renan and I went back and filmed some of the pitches leading, you know, like for the T V uh-huh. thing. And then sure. he took a couple of pictures of me free soloing this basically at this one place. It was easy for us, like at this one anchor, mm-hmm. the next pitch like traversed off the anchor and then went up a little bit. So it was like a really easy place to snap some pictures without having to actually rig very much because uh, we both could be hanging at the anchor together. And then I could just slip out of my harness, climb like five moves, get this rad photo on the serrette and then just climb back over the anchor. Um, and it was kind of like 5'11 terrain, but like crazy exposed and really, really cool. And so um, he shot a couple pictures just so that like, there'd be like a photo of me free soloing at Tapui because I felt like just for for history's sake, you know, like for the American Alpine Journal or something, sure. it's just nice to have a photo of like, look, this thing got done, and it, it's a great route. It was really good climbing. Like I was saying, because we had a bunch of time to work on it, you know, I like brushed all the holes and ticked a bunch of things, and it, you know, when I climbed it, it felt incredible. It's like because the rock is so good there, which is the whole point of climbing Tapui's because the rock is incredible. Like when you get to the good stuff, it's really really good, and so. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I don't know if this is breaking or not, but um, it could be. <laughs> I don't really care that much, but it just would be cool. I mean, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can claim it. You can claim it. I mean, All I right, don't sweet. think... Uh, Norma Cast, big news. Yeah, beep, yeah, beep, yeah, beep, exactly. Beep, yeah, yeah. Beep, yeah, issue a press release, the Norma Cast, breaking the big stories. First, big stories, Tapui exactly. Free Solo, I think. That's pretty sick. The, I mean, the I, odds are pay, that when I you, pay attention and I, don't, I haven't heard about it. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, yeah, actually, that's true. Um, well, cause I felt weird <laughs> posting anything about it. Cause I don't know, you know, I'd wait till the TV thing. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you said about it being a little bit outside of the purview of the trip and, yeah, exactly. you know, trying to change focus or, or steal the spotlight. Kind of yeah, thing. exactly. Um, like I don't want to take away from the focus on, on the fact that the Bruce, the biologist found, you know, um, yeah. oh, actually I don't think we're allowed to break that either. That actually okay. might matter more because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just see. Who knows? I'm, I'm not claiming anything one way or another, right. but um, I okay. think that maybe for Bruce, it's important <laughs> not to show images and things. I mean, I, I think right. that with science, it's really important to follow the right protocol where you publish the, sure. the peer reviewed papers. You know, um, it's a little different than climbing where you just post an Instagram where you're like, oh, I did this thing. <laughs> People yeah. are like, sweet. And then it's considered officially, uh, you know, like, yeah, then it's considered official. I don't know. But what well, I mean, <laughs> I've been telling you, I've been telling the stories that you actually after our our last interview you got the third degree from from Jimmy Chin like they had you in a chair with a big light on your face and we're like what did you tell Calouse? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised but I don't know. So it's, yeah, it's my it's my pride and joy that I got you talking <laughs> and uh, maybe said something that you weren't supposed to say. Yeah. But uh, but no know. that guy Bruce sounds like a really interesting cat. Dude, what a character. I mean, he turned 80 on the trip. And really? Yeah, it's crazy. He's 80 years old, and he's still just trekking through the jungle looking for new species. It was totally amazing. And and so passionate about it, too. That's actually one of the things I thought was most fun about being on the trip with him is he made me appreciate you know biology in a way that I just have never really thought about because he was so into it. That's funny because Sinat said the same thing about a previous trip with him, that it like changed that's in the same way, like changed his perspective on like what it meant to go on these trips and versus like the passion that this guy had for biology. Yeah. Honestly, I think I had pretty much the same experience that Mark had Mm -hmm. on that previous trip was that I came away from this thinking that if I ever do another Tapui expedition, I'm definitely going to bring a biologist or somebody along because 
there's just such opportunity for furthering human knowledge in a way. And it's funny because if you're doing a climbing expedition, it's not that much more of a hassle logistically to include rations for one more person. Like if you're already doing all the logistics, like, you know, what does it matter carrying food for one more person? But for a biologist to get the opportunity to to stay in one of these places and, and do science, basically to like look around and look for new species, it's just like they just don't really get that opportunity normally and there's no real funding for it. And so it can be this tremendous you know boon for science basically i don't know i was i was surprised by because you always think of scientists it's like oh well surely people have probably done all that before but but actually there's no real funding for it you know like nobody's going to pay somebody mm-hmm. to go out to the middle of nowhere and look for frogs or at least you know some people will but it's it's hard to find the funding for it and so i think if you're on a climbing trip you should definitely at least consider you know taking somebody with that kind of background it, it's interesting too i mean i read i've read a bunch of sort of old climbing stories and, and there's definitely a strong history of that kind of thing you know where like alpinists used to you know take flower pressings and like all that kind of stuff like any kind of expedition also involved collecting samples and you know writing up observations about geology and and uh you know flora and fauna all that kind of stuff and i feel like that's kind of disappeared a little bit as climbing's become more of a sport you know now it's just like mm-hmm. oh you want to go perform this athletic achievement but nobody's really collecting flower clippings anymore also the history of it especially with like you know alpinism in in asia you know the karakoram and and the himalaya was that you know they were these expeditions into the unknown so it's probably partially that you know it's very it's getting harder and harder to go into the unknown you know go into these places like you went into to find sort of new ground in terms of biology or whatever yeah but but i think what's interesting is that where we went isn't technically unknown i mean you know, right. where we went is, is the border of, of uh, Guyana, Venezuela, and Brazil. And so, I mean, that region is relatively well documented because the border has been disputed for 150 years. You know, like people mm-hmm. have argued about the lines on the map for a long time. And so people have gone there technically, but people just haven't right. really gone there with enough time and resource and energy to spend time looking for specific species of frog or specific, you know, species of flower or whatever else. I don't know. I mean, I think that there, there are probably a lot more gaps in human knowledge than people might appreciate. And so, sure. you know, I think anytime you're going sort of toward the edges of the map, it's like worth worth considering what the gaps are. Speaking of that, you're also now known for your foundation. And uh, tell me a little bit about how that's grown, um, you know, because you had it going before, you know, the, the movie and, and everything that's come with it that we've talked about. Um, but this is must have or this must be just an incredible boost to, to the work that you ever did with that. I mean, in terms of being able to raise money, being able to raise awareness, being able to, uh, to get other people on board. Yeah, Um, for sure. So talk a little bit about how that's changed and what's going on with that. No, it's been great. I mean, so when I started the foundation in 2012 or so, I was giving away about 50 grand of my own money a year through it. And that represented, you know, like a third of my income at the time. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is, you know, cool to do something useful with, with the money that, you know, and I was living in the vans, it's like low overhead. It's all pretty chill. Oh, there's a car alarm outside my house. What the heck? It's like, who has a car alarm in the suburbs? So it's, it's part of the soundscape of the enormous (laughs) engines, horns, whatever. Yeah. Kids screaming in the background. (laughs) Like, I wonder if you can hear that though. That's so scrappy. You didn't listen to the Corey. uh, Did you listen to the Corey, um, the Corey rich episode? No. What, what happened? Uh, Oh, you got to go back and listen to it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, you made an appearance. Oh, cool. Did I wait? Did I wander in chatting or something? No, no, no. Okay. Okay. Well, um, well, so what I was saying with the foundation was that, you know, last year we, we gave away over a million dollars in grants, basically. And so to see it 
you know, basically have 20 times the impact from where it started is, it's pretty satisfying, you know I mean? Because it started as just me wanting to do something useful in the world. It was like, I just felt an obligation to, to try to do something. And mm-hmm. to see that just have such a bigger impact as a result of things like free solo and, and sort of broader public support. I mean, it's pretty, pretty satisfying to know that, that that many more projects are being funded in the world. It's something I thought of right away, you know, when, when uh, that kind of whirlwind started to started to begin, and you know, we talked. To, I talked to uh, Mikey Schaefer like early on when there was just kind of rumors. He kind of like he kind of uh, previewed that there were rumors that it was going to be nominated, you mm. know. And and I flat out on record was like, well, it's going to win, dude. <laughs> and um, so you know, and and getting it nominated, and then it was you know that the night of, and and I was I was really confident that it was going to win. I, I don't know how you guys felt about it, but um, you can be humble and not, not no, actually, express your by, opinion, by the but, time it was a finalist or shortlist yeah. or whatever it is, um, I felt like it was fifty fifty. But that's partially because a bunch of the other favorites didn't get nominated. So like mm-hmm. in the early phase, it was like, who knows, you know, it's a wide open field and, and the whole selection process is a little more opaque than, than people might think. It's all sort sure. of crazy with like who's seen the film, who votes, like all kinds of stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, but by the time the night of the actual Academy Awards, I was, I was kind of like a solid 50, 50 that it was going to win. I was like, well, Feeling you know, good. well, I mean, not, I mean, I, I was trying to, I was kind of neutral, but I was like, yeah, there's a pretty good chance this could happen. You know, this is crazy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It right. had just come out of IMAX. It was like, it was definitely like kind of riding a high, you know, I think the sure. whole PR tour went really well. There was, mm-hmm. it was well executed where it was like, there was all the right buzz around it at the right time. What I was actually getting to is that like, I, f- I was thinking about it and I'm like, okay, well, you know, compared to what he was doing before, like, you know, Alex is going to be set you know fairly financially but i quickly leaped to the to the to the foundation because a lot of raising money for something like that just has everything to do with name recognition and everything to do with being able to get into a room Mm -hmm. um with with people that have an interest and have money to to put towards something and all of a sudden that you know became uh, a pretty big opportunity for you and honestly a big part of the reason that i've done public things like free solo is because it's good for the foundation you know, it's like, yeah, because the reality is that the big public appearances and, and media things don't make my personal life any better. You know, it's like my, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like I need to be recognized on the street more. It's like, it's not like that's making my life better. And, you know, sure. in terms of my day to day of like going climbing, working on sport projects, you know, hanging out with my wife, like that's all pretty good either way. Like I don't need to do more media for that. But when right. I do more media, it does wind up funneling into the foundation and that does wind up having a positive impact on the world. And that's pretty satisfying. And the actual act of doing the media, like a lot of the random things that come my way are fun to do, but there's sure. no real need to do them for myself because it's not going to change my quality of life. But it's nice when I can do something fun and interesting, kind of new, and know that it's going to have a positive impact on the world through the, through the work that the foundation does. And so, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was uh, just doing this other talk where, where someone was talking about inspirations and uh, I was talking about Peter Croft and it's mm-hmm. interesting because he's taken a really different approach toward, toward being a professional climber. You know, he's always kind of stayed away from the spotlight more and like done, done less media, fewer public appearances, uh, you know, fewer film projects, things like that. And he's always sort of focused more on his own personal experience of going climbing and, and you know, doing what he wants as a climber, which I totally respect. And, and one of the things I really admire about Peter is how he's maintained like a pure joy and love of climbing, you know, for, 
freaking 50 years or whatever you know it's like he's been climbing a really long time and and he still just loves it as if he's a child you know it's like he's he's incredibly inspiring as a climber but he definitely chose a fully different track and i mean sort of early on i sort of strategically chose to just embrace the whole public persona media side of it because i'm like you know what i mean you can harness that to do something useful in the world through the work that the foundation does i'm like at least you know i'm having a positive impact hopefully yeah i mean and it's felt really good with the way Peter's gone about it, you know, it's like, I don't know, it just, it just fits who he is. Yeah. That, that's the thing is a, that, totally that right. that's Peter and that that's what he's into. And, and I totally respect that, but you know, I just, but there's like, other times when I find that like some climbers who, you know, are actively kind of like, you know, crusty about it all or, or like, you know, that's their whole party line about how, you know, they have to do these things or they're, or, it's just like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't sit well with me. It's like, and and I appreciate the fact that you, you know, you just tore it off and said, all right, this is, this is what my life's going to be like. And it, and it sort of, um, I feel like it sort of fits you in that way, the way it fits, the way it fits Peter to not do that sort of stuff. Totally. You know? I mean, that's the thing is I feel like we both have made choices and we're very happy with our choices. You know, I mean, and and I know there are definitely examples of professional climbers who didn't necessarily choose, you know, they just feel like they got sucked into something and they're like, I don't know, it feels like a lot of pressure and I'm stressed and it's not great. But I was kind of like, you know what, I love climbing and the work that you do as a professional climber, meaning like talking about climbing and writing about it and, you know, like doing film projects, you know, I, I don't mind doing that stuff. I think it's all fun. And I... And I certainly don't have any skills to do anything better with my, with my life. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know how to do anything else. I don't, you know, it's not like I know how to write code or something. So, I mean, there's something to be said for making a living in, in a way that's relatively easy for me and is, and is fun and satisfying and still allows me to climb as much as I want. Uh, yeah, I kind of, well, I kind of chose, I was like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just embracing it. I'm doing this and, and this is great. I'm into it. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show again because I've been, you know, it's like I said when we started, it's been four years almost since you were on the show and, and so much has changed. And, and you know, and it's like I know you to a certain extent and but I, I get to I just get to see you like everybody else through media. And it's been kind of curious about, you know, when, when it started to blow up, it's like, well, is he going to change? Is, is there going to be sort of this weird rock star thing that's going to happen to him? I mean, he's literally hanging out with rock stars. <laughs> Um, you know, which, which makes the climbing community kind of grown a little bit, as you probably know, but it, it, it's, it's fun to talk to you. And, and I think, you know, hearing through your voice right now, it's like, you're, you're maybe not the guy I met at, at Eddie McStiff's in Moab, like 10 years ago, but you're definitely still the guy I talked to about four years ago, um, which is refreshing and, and I appreciate it. And I think you have the skills to, you know, to keep all that stuff in perspective, the thing for me that I always come back to is that the thing about being a professional climber is that ultimately you have to send, you know, it's like, it's always about climbing hard <laughs> things. That to me is, is the role of, of a professional climber is to, to do new things in climbing. And I think as long as you hold on to that, it's like, I have to do hard things, you know, it's like, you can't stray too far, you know? Right, right. No, no, well, no. I mean, yeah, but you're, you're, you know, if you're, you said you're going to be a professional climber until you're 50 in your fifties, at least. Let me tell you, there may be a point where you're like, well, maybe I might have to take it down a notch, but uh, yeah. that's a whole other conversation. No, but, but. <laughs> but look at somebody like Conrad, you know, I mean, Conrad's definitely taking it down a few notches, but he's still yeah. contributing to climbing in a pretty serious yeah. way. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah, I think se- sending can be probably interpreted a bunch of different ways. Well, like um, s- sending to me is like doing new things, like developing a new yeah. crag or like coming up with good ideas to, or even, 
you know, encouraging younger and stronger climbers to do sure. really good ideas. You know what I mean? But, but as long as you're still contributing to the sport, you know, I think that's, sure. I think that's useful. So one of the reasons we, uh, we ended up doing this, or at least I proposed it to you, um, <laughs> although I think you would have done it. Um, I appreciate that you probably would have done it anyway, is that, uh, you've got this climbing podcast out, um, that you're part of. So I want to talk for a few minutes about that. It's been funny being kind of, uh, you know, one of the sort of players in the, the climbing podcast market. I, of course, heard about it before it ever came out that, um, you know, jokingly, Alex Hall was coming to crush me, um, <laughs> to crush the Enorma cast and, you know, throw its ragdoll podcast out the window. But, uh, um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about how you got involved in climbing gold and, uh, and why and why you, you felt like it was time to contribute to something like that. Yeah, so, so I'm doing Climbing Gold with Fitz Cahal from Duct Tape and Beer. And uh, Fitz and I had talked about it. Um, you know, he does the Dirtbag Diaries and, and uh, sure. whatever. And so Fitz and I had talked about it as sort of a, a podcast leading up to the Olympics. It's just like a limited series leading up to the Olympics, which is supposed to be last summer, but obviously pushed because of the pandemic. But, um, but we both felt like there's this real, that there's a real moment in climbing right now where mm-hmm. the sport is experiencing tremendous growth. I mean, just the fact that I just called it a sport represents a huge change in what climbing has been over the last 50 years, let's say. You know, because if you'd ask somebody 25 years ago, they, they wouldn't call it a sport. You know, they'd be like, oh, this is, this is a vocation or like a lifestyle or a, an art or whatever else. You know what I mean? But it was much more of an adventure. And, you know, now for somebody like me who grew up in a gym, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a sport. You train, you execute, you know, it's like it's just like gymnastics, but more fun. But right, not exactly. But, you know, I'm being facetious. But but that's kind of what we're exploring through Climbing Gold is that whole transition from pure adventure to a much more athletic sport now. And, and part of it happened because uh, I'm supposed to be doing commentary for the Olympics this summer, though. We'll see what form that winds up taking because Japan uh, may or may not allow anybody i mean they, they may just cancel the games entirely you know we'll, we'll see what happens with the olympics but in theory in a non-pandemic world i would be there doing commentary with with the olympics this summer and so i felt like doing a podcast was a great way for me to sort of practice my my skills a little bit because I'm, I'm not a great speaker and i was like <laughs> oh jesus uh but also a good way to interview a lot of the competitors and i mean even just learning background on a lot of the competitors because like man if i'm doing Mm -hmm. olympic commentary i better learn how to say everybody's names right i better learn you know basic backgrounds like ages and and skill sets and uh you know competition histories and i was i figured the podcast would be a great way to do that but then uh because the olympics got pushed we wound up deciding to just do sort of a deeper background on what has led climbing into the olympics and so if you've Mm -hmm. heard any of our first episodes we sort of started uh, I mean, and the other key thing about climbing gold is that it's totally different than other podcasts because uh, we've actually rallied sponsors. And so we've hired, you know, sound mixer and sound editor and, and more. Basically, there's way more post-production. So the interviews are much more edited. And the whole point is to kind of extract great stories and, and sort of speak mm-hmm. to specific themes. You know, so like with the Enormacast, you know, you just have interesting folks and then just have long conversations with them, which I think is awesome. And it's a really good way to get to know somebody. But mm-hmm. what we're trying to create is a much more thematic, like, here's what first ascents are, like, here's what bouldering is, and here's where bouldering came from, and here's how that has helped craft the direction of climbing, or sort of shape the direction of, of climbing. So, I don't know. So, that's basically what Climbing Gold is all about. I mean, the hope mm-hmm. is that when it's all said and done, we'll have, it's supposed to be 20 episodes, and uh, hopefully it'll be a resource for anybody who's even remotely interested in climbing. I mean, it's not made for hardcore climbers though hopefully there's enough 
interesting material in there that even the most hardcore climber can enjoy it. But, um, but it's more for people who have just gotten into climbing, who are interested, who are, you know, curious where climbing has come from. I mean, this is a bit of a long rant, but part of this is because like I do a lot of events at gyms and it's interesting because most climbers that I meet now have started climbing, you know, say three years ago and they start in the gym and they do a lot of bouldering. And, and I think that's great because that's the same way that I started climbing. You know, like I don't have any, any problem with, with starting in the gym. Or, or maybe it's just that I feel like a lot of climbing history is slowly being left behind because I meet a lot of people sure. at events who are like, oh, Chris Sharma, is, is that guy like that Spanish dude that like screams? And you're sort of like, oh, man, you're like, it's the Chris Sharma. Like, have some respect. No, you know? they don't say that really. Dude, well, I mean, the thing is that, that I, I bet if you took a took a average of all people who rock climb in the U.S. right now, I bet the, the mean sure. time climbing it probably is like two or three years. You know, I mean, just because right. the sport's been growing so quickly. And so I think sure. that you just wind up losing a lot of a lot of cultural knowledge, you know, and, and yeah, especially yeah. because so many climbing stories are sort of oral history. You know, it's like things that you hear on the campfire. I remember being a kid and hearing all the Stonemaster stories like, you know, John Yablonski doing all these crazy things in Joshua Tree. And like those types of stories, you know, some of them are recorded in, in some old writings, but not that many. You know, a lot of that is just mm-hmm. like word of mouth type of things. And it's good to save some of the outrageous stories. Yeah, I mean, it's been a mission of mine as well. You know, I don't pursue what's going to be sort of popular or news or whatever at the time. Like, okay, this happened. I got to get that person on the show. I mean, that's a little more what we do at the run out. But, but here, I'm just like, I want to catch and capture some of these people. In my case, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm going deep, it's like literally before they pass, you know, before they're gone. Totally. And, uh, and, and, and capture that. And like you said, to have it as sort of posterity to be there. Um, yeah, I, you know, and and I I agree that you know what we do are very different things, and you know it's kind of two pretty common podcast forms. You know what we both do, what I call sort of the curated interview, is kind of what you guys are doing, and what I'm doing, I you know openly have ripped it off of people before me. Um, but but <laughs> well, also I mean, what, personally, I feel like it's a great is, con- contribution. Yeah, I mean, you're doing what you're doing is a one man band where it's like you're doing all the work, and whereas Climbing Gold has a team, and so it's way more yeah. produced and 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 just way more put together as a final product i kind of think that climbing gold will wind up being a a big benefit to to climbing podcasts overall because like i've I've been doing a bunch of pr stuff around climbing gold and it's all been on sort of mainstream sports podcasts and things and i I really Mm -hmm. think that it's Mm going to bring a lot of people into climbing podcasts more generally and and help educate a lot of people about what climbing is and where it's come from and where it's going which which is kind of the whole point and I think from there, they branch out into the more niche, you know, things like the Enormcast, the Runout, you know, or like, what's the, uh, what's the power company one called? Or is it just the, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, I think it's power company. Yeah, what, whatever that podcast, you know, like. Which yeah, and is, the Nugget too. Um, another guy, Stephen Dimmitt's doing the Nugget, which is in a whole nother interview one as well. Yeah, I mean, all the, but, but those all have like more niche focuses where it's like, this is purely sure. on training. Like the power company one mm-hmm. is like whole episodes on like what protocol you should use for hangboarding, you know? And you're just kind of yeah. like, man, to the average non-climber, <laughs> they'd be like WTF. Yeah. What are they talking about? You know, <laughs> exactly. it's like, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that climbing gold is sort of contributing a different thing to the, the climbing podcast space. And hopefully mm-hmm. it'll be a resource for the casual interested person who sees climbing in the Olympics and they're like, that's cool. I wonder what that's all about, which is just totally different than what's out there right now. 
Yeah, yeah, and then then you know the little gateway drug, and then they'll come over to the Enorma cast for the real stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for the real deep deep dive into what the hell climbing is. They'll be but, like, they um, really went deep. It was it was so interesting. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I've been jealous. You know, I've been jealous. Uh, I think you guys have four, what four or five episodes out, and um, you've already nailed some guests that I was just like, ugh. You know, I mean, you know, uh, Joanne Uriosti, uh, Joanna, or is it Joanne? Yeah, Joanne, Joanne. Yeah, Joanne. Um, yeah, she, you know, she's she was so someone amazing. I, yeah, I know, and she was someone I tried to get on the show like way early on. Um, I was out at Red Rock, the rendezvous, and some friends of hers were like, "You got to have her on." I'm like, "Dude, I will, hundred thousand percent." But, um, you know, she demurred, and uh, I, you know, it was a time when no one even knew what a podcast was. Totally, um, really. dude, you should try again. So, she, she was actually she was great. I mean, I think she's uh you know, totally open to doing a good interview. Oh, I loved your interview and it was such a great story. The whole like, you know, know. getting George out of the, out of the (laughs) freaking priesthood, you know? Yeah. yeah, The priesthood was like a tight, you know, that was an awesome part of the interview. I was smiling through the whole thing and texted Fitz and, you know, said touche. Yeah. It's um, wild. Getting her to go. And, um, he, he said she, you know, it was a little bit of a hard sell, but, um, but they took care of it. So, and then, you know, you had Gil on the most recent one. Yeah. But she doesn't. She comes across so confident and great. No, she know? yeah, she was incredible. I mean, and and the fact that she's put up all the classic roots in Red Rock, and yet nobody really knows about it. It's like it's just so, essentially yeah, yeah it's so amazing, yeah, totally. But um, no, the yeah, John Gill so. one. I don't know if you heard. Uh, we released this little thing that we call the bit of gold, but basically a bonus mm-hmm. little bonus episode, which mm-hmm. in some ways is a good way of sharing extra cool stories. And I think it's also a way to allow Fitz to have an extra week to edit like other episodes because you know he's like sure. frantically working to like crank these out. But um, but the bit of gold with Gill was like this amazing story of him his first time climbing outside which was just this totally outrageous anecdote that didn't totally fit into the episode because like i said it's all sort of curated thematic around bouldering but the story was just so good where like it needs some some home you know and so we're we're trying to save sort of extract a bunch of those little stories and like save them in their own own ways because they're just such good anecdotes you know and and john gill i think is is 80 maybe or pushing 80 and yeah. so, you know, it's like it's good to to save those kinds of stories when you can. Well, it's made me feel lazy <laughs> because I've like I've sort of slept on a lot of these guys and obviously, you know, folks have hit me up about Gill. Um I've, you know, been in contact with Sherman and tried tried to get it done and, and it hasn't really happened and um but yeah, you know, it's like I'll, I I kind of had all the time in the world and then all of a sudden you guys roll and you're like, "Here's John Gill." I'm like, "Shit." But again, this is the difference <laughs> between having a producer and things because uh in this case we have Lisey, Lisey Hedrick sure. um who's you know, sending emails and like dealing because if I had to personally reach out to all these people, it just wouldn't happen because, you know, sure. I'd be too busy going sport climbing in the morning and then I'd be like, "Well, I'm pretty tired now." I was like, "I don't really want to write a bunch of emails." You know, so it's like that to me is the difference between having like a team working on a podcast versus an individual. Totally. Yeah. And I, I actually was really, um, you know, I didn't get jealous until, until episode two. Um, cause you know, I, I think actually I have a really awesome and, and people love my, my interview with, um, with Peter and, uh, and, and that actually also happened out at Red Rock and was, was kind of funny cause it was also before there was a podcast was a thing. And I, I don't really think he knew what, I, who I was or why it was happening, but like I had sort of hounded him, you know, and he is a sponsor. He was and is a sponsored athlete. So he probably was like, fine, I should do this. So, totally. you know, but I got him to turn the TV off in his, in his room and, <laughs> and, and I literally could like see him kind of like come alive and go like, Oh, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. This isn't just like garbage, like, you know, 
me you know mainstream media kind of like oh tell me about what it's like to be scared on a free solo kind of totally. thing i i sort of felt it turn like right in the middle of it mm -hmm. and um and in him kind of come alive and all of a sudden i saw that person you were talking about that like kid you know lit up in his eyes and like oh we're really going to talk about climbing yeah for that's real. that's what's so you great know? about yeah. peter is that given the opportunity yeah. he'll always turn on and be like climbing let's do it you know so like, yeah totally yeah peter's so. just still has so much enthusiasm for it that yeah it's, it's it's like always a pleasure to talk to peter about about climbing basically yeah for sure always a pleasure so well listen man i've used up quite a bit of your time um and i appreciate you coming on but it's always a pleasure to talk to you as well well, I mean, you know, let's give it another couple years and we'll see uh, my next Normacast appearance. It's so exciting. Yeah, we'll see if we can, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know how your numbers turn out on this one. <laughs> well, if, if they're not good, you have to have me back on immediately. I'll, uh, I'll, exactly. I'll give more salacious yeah. stories and I'll tell, well, uh, it'll be like a tell all about, you know, who knows that, what. You know, that's what we need. I mean, you're, you're playing in like Hollywood now. Like we, we got to get some dirt out of that whole scene. We, we didn't even talk about really about that. Like, did you ever, you know, you went on Rogan again recently. Did, did he invite you to another uh, MMA fight or what? <laughs> no. Well, now he, now he lives in Austin. His, his scene's all a little different. I was in Austin with him. Um, oh, right. But um, no, actually, I feel like uh, the Rogan experience has gotten more pro and like more chill. Because the first time I did, uh -huh. I was like, whoa, this is kind of crazy and a bit too much. And I think part of that is me growing up and being a little more media savvy. And then part of that is him probably doing the same. But um, but no, this time actually it was kind of kind of fun to chat with him. I was like, this is a fun interview. You know, it's like really interesting. Well, I mean, you guys like enter the room a little bit more on at least media wise on equal footing. Yeah, um, totally. You know, well, also the first time here, here's a here's a enormous cast expose. But the first time I did it, Ooh. I showed up in some. Uh, so I've done Rogan three times now. And each time was in a different okay. studio because he's moved around a bit. And the first time was just like some random unmarked building where I was like, it feels all industrial. It's just like some random door in the side of a warehouse. And you're like, where is this? And then I got in and they like closed the door and there's a whole team. It's like, you know, the sound dudes, like who knows who they all were. It's like his entourage. And uh, a bunch of dudes smoked a bunch. Of, basically, they closed the door. There are no windows. There's no timepiece. A bunch of dudes smoke a bunch of weed and then just turn on the mics. And it's like, here we go. And I was like oh my god like you know i'm like locked in a cell with a bunch <laughs> of dudes who are stoned and then you just talk for hours but with no timepiece you like have no idea like how long you know you're just chatting and you're like this is so crazy and at the time i had done basically no media so i was like this is totally insane you know and then each time since then like i've become a little more savvy and and his scene has changed quite a bit and sure. so you know he's a lot more pro and uh, it's a hundred million dollar scene now dude i know it's hard to imagine huh it's hard to imagine. Do you regret not going to that MMA fight? Because I know you went off to like, like Toronto Blanco. Yeah, yeah. I think I went like to Mexico instead. No, I don't yeah. regret that at all. Okay. I like I did a new route on a rad wall. I'm like, who cares about some <laughs> random MMA fight? All right, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. Um, have you ever thought about doing um, Twice podcast? No, no, he's never hit me up. I would love to because oh, I, I don't know him and I've never, never like met him or chatted with him, but. Uh, but I have tons of respect for his writing and his climbing and just his whole scene. I'd be so interested to hear just his whole, um, his whole approach, you know I mean? Like what a yeah, character. Dude, I think, I think that would be a really cool thing because you know, when I interviewed him, it was like this immersive experience that was really fascinating. Mm. And he, he kind of does the, he sort of does the, I think they do the kind of Rogan thing of like, let's just roll. They're not, I don't think they're weed smokers, but, um, yeah. but I certainly drank a lot when I interviewed him. So, but yeah, I, th I feel like he could, I feel like maybe he could 
you know, you guys could really meet on some level that might be really fascinating. Yeah, he, he's actually. also like personally dabbled in all the Hollywood stuff too, hasn't he? I mean, he's had a whole oh, yeah, interesting trained, arc through his own climbing. Yeah, for sure. He's trained uh, like yeah, the 300 guys yeah. and stuff, right? In a bunch yep, of... Yep, and Superman. And um, I think he's trained uh, Aquaman too. Oh yeah, he trained Jason but, Momoa? Yeah, I think so. No shit. So... I'm like, I, I, yeah, I trained, he's kind uh, of in that scene. I trained Jason Momoa for about 45 minutes in the gym once. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, you're really strong. You're... <laughs> Dude, I, had to, I climbed to the gym with him and he was telling the story about wrestling a bear for this like shoot that he was doing where uh, it was uh-huh. like a full. I mean, it, you know, obviously it's like a tame, you know, whatever uh, trained bear. But he said that still. it's still really hard because the thing weighs, I don't know, like 600 pounds or something. So when it leans on you, it's like a tremendous amount of effort to to not get crushed. And so you know he was basically like shooting this bear wrestling scene over and over and he's like yeah sure it's hard to hold that bear up and i was like what the fuck i was like who is this and then i belayed him and it's uh really scary to belay even belaying him with the grieger i was holding it like an atc because i was like who knows what's going to happen when a 250 pound man falls off the top of this wall i was like this is so scary <laughs> when i when i worked in in uh la i i worked in a gym in la uh west la the rock creation there there was this cat there that um was one of these former strongest men in the world dudes Whoa. and he he literally had lifted this rock in <laughs> scotland that hadn't been lifted in like 200 years or whatever because you know they've been doing like log throwing and rock lifting there for you know since like shakespeare and uh he had lifted this rock like that the locals just like went crazy um and it was the same thing like when he would take a whipper it was just like the whole building felt like it would fucking shake and like those old shitty gym ropes you're just like oh my god this thing is gonna snap um so yes a similar sort of thing anything could happen what was his name was tom something but um sweetest guy in the world too though this dude um and he wasn't even he was like oh man i'm way lighter than i used to be dude Um, because he was sort of retired but good thing or he would have ripped the whole especially because recreation such an old gym he could have ripped the whole wall down (laughs) totally i mean exactly right i mean nowadays but uh but yeah so um but yeah if you uh next time you see momoa tell tell him what you told me when you when you uh last time you did the enorma cast which was that if you're a climber you pretty much have to do the enorma cast yeah no i'll tell him um, I, I bet he would honestly if you the thing is you'd have to find the way to get it like scheduled through his you know publicist or team or whatever but like if it totally, was just on 100%. his calendar he'd be like yeah cool this is fun like he would he would love yeah, just yeah. chatting about climbing for for an hour or two you know but uh um, yeah, that would be super cool but that's always the crux is like getting it onto the calendar or whatever because He's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure there must be time eventually in between shooting this movie and that movie and this crazy thing I've gone on and this other thing and my family and my kids. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, at a certain point, and, and I'm experiencing this a little bit, you sort of lose control of your own calendar because, like, other people are just, mm-hmm. like, putting stuff on there and doing stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And so then you just you just wind up, like, doing whatever people tell you to. But if someone told him to do the cast, he'd be great. Yeah, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Actually, Mark, Mark kind of kind of sort of teased it a little bit but uh but yeah i don't know how to get through that wall but um but yeah anyway back to you let's uh, Dude, uh let's wrap t- this t- thing uh, up tell chris oh, sharma to put it on there yeah totally I was like, well, are you friends with I chris because i feel like chris could do it i i i haven't been able to lock that guy down Dude, either. you've never done like, an enormous cast with chris no no he's Dude. he's like a wily is he you know well, he just is like one of those dudes that's like, yeah, man. And then yeah, I'd love, well, when that's it comes the same to thing. actually like getting it, yeah, totally. getting it on the calendar. But it's the opposite problem <laughs> to where his calendar is so open that he's like. No, I think just, his calendar is pretty full no now. Reason. I mean, he's like running yeah, two yeah, gyms and two joking, kids but, and, you know, dealing with family. Well, yeah, stuff. that sort of stuff. But, but, but yeah, 
getting him to like be on a mic at a certain time of day totally uh, well especially with the is, euro time change stuff it's all kind of cruxy <laughs> yeah but um, no I, but i haven't actually put a strong effort into it lately so maybe it's time. I, dude having him on uh on climbing gold was like such a pleasure and then uh, after the episode came out he sent me a text it was like dude thanks for making me look like a hero i was like i was like dude you're the chris sharma it doesn't take very much yeah. you know it's like it's exactly. uh, pretty easy to make you look like a hero because you freaking are you know. Yeah, it's funny because the, the Normacast is riddled with Chris Sharma stories from other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Will Gad and stuff. But uh, but yeah, never heard from the man. I know it's weird. There's a few holes. Steve House is a big big hole in the resume as mm. well. Um, he's also been really wily. I am. So Interesting. yeah, so I appreciate you not being wily. Yeah, well, you know that's because you have my phone number, so you just send me a text, and it, I'm just like, yeah, I guess I'll do that thing. That's fun. That's cool. Yeah, but I, you know, it's it's funny because I I you know I, I feel like I I have a somewhat empathy of of what your time you know is is like now and so it's you know i'm not just gonna like be in your ear or on your case all the time because i I do want to respect your time your time to climb and your time to to have a career and stuff like that um so i do really appreciate uh you coming on the show um and making time for something like the enormous cast and and to talk to your your peoples you know no that's that's the the climbers are here man and they you know they they've loved you for years and you know, kind of contributed to who you are in, in a big way that, uh, you know, we're still here wanting to wanting you to do good. You no, know? that's that's exactly the thing is I kind of love speaking to core, like pure climbing audiences when, when I get to because mm-hmm. like for all the times that I do Good Morning America or something weird like that and have to explain that there's a difference between free climbing and free soloing. I'm like, oh, it's such a pleasure to just go deep into pure climbing. I'm like, oh, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, doing something like the normal cast is, is so fun, you know, compared to to doing corporate speaking or doing mainstream media. So I'm like, oh, you know, it's always a pleasure to, to talk to talk to my peers, you know. So one last question. Are you ever scared? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, dude, I, I did a, I did a, a, an interview recently uh, about climbing gold. You know, technically it was like PR for climbing gold stuff. Sure. But uh, literally like the, the, the mic turned on and the guy was like, what's it like to freestyle? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, oh man, he, he might not have said freestyle, but it was like freehand or like free whatever. And I was right, like, right, what? I was like, God damn, you know, and it was like eight in the morning or something. I like just gotten up to like do this thing. And I was like, okay, time to like flip the switch and like be engaging and be articulate and be like, well, so the thing you're talking about is actually called free soloing, which is, you know, climbing with your hands and your feet and no rope to protect you. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Alex for making time for that so enthusiastically. He was incredibly easy to book, actually, which is awesome. Not everybody is. Not everybody even returns my emails or my texts, but Alex was right on top of it, so appreciate that. And I want to point something out is that the rise in Alex Honnold's fortunes have actually paralleled almost exactly the rise in the fortunes of the Enormacast. I mean, minus the Oscar, I'll give him that. But I don't think that's a coincidence. I think Alex owes the Norman Cast a lot more than he thinks. And you heard him. Mean, he was already trying to book a fourth appearance. Like, come on, dude, let's just relax. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll see what else you do, all right? Anyhow, thanks again to Alex. Yeah, the pandemic, it's, it's going out the door for, for a lot of parts of the country. Let's hope it stays out the door and uh, people don't act crazy too crazy out there you know take it easy ease back into it all we got the rest of our lives luckily 
for most of us, sadly not for everyone. You made it through. Don't fuck up now. Be careful and watch out for each other. We don't know what the lingering psychological damage of this whole thing is. So watch out for each other. Give each other space, to use that word that's so popular right now. They don't want to quite ease out the door yet, you know? Nudge. Don't yank them out the door. And be careful out there climbing. Watch out for each other. Be cool. Memorial Day weekend. Your crag is going to be packed with people. Deal with it. Be kind. And check your knots. Do you know who I am? No, I, I can't say that I do. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Really? People know me. I'm very happy for you. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. (laughs) 